So you can go ahead and turn back to Matthew chapter 2. We're four weeks in. We're four weeks in. So we're going to finish up chapter 2 today. So when we last left off last week, um, humble Mary had been approached by an angel and told, hey, you're going to have a baby. And her whole life and, and her future husband's life are turned upside down by the fact that now they no longer are going to be perfectly viewed culturally speaking, by, by their friends and their family because, because of this thing that's going to happen in their life. She's going to have this baby. But we found out that this baby wasn't just any baby. Last week we talked about, about these, these wise men that came to worship a king. Not just any baby, not just the fact that he was born, not just he was born in this certain way, but they came to worship a ruler, a king. Somebody who was set apart, who was, who was greater than any king that the earth had seen at this point. And they, and they came and they were, they were looking for this king. And they came to Herod, who was the ruler over Israel at the time. And they said, we saw this star in the sky that was pointing us to this king. Could you please tell us where he's been born so that we can go and worship him? And we, and we just read this one sentence last week. It said, and, and knowing that there was this other king, troubled Herod. And we kind of we left off with this thought that Jesus is coming, if you don't know who Jesus is, if you don't know and love Jesus, is going to be troubling to you. It's going to be offensive to you. But what we're going to see today is that it's so much more than that. It, 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 it leaves this passionate, vindictive feeling within Herod. And he's going to order something so wicked and so evil that we need to pause and, and fully grasp what happens, why this happened, and, and, and what God was trying to accomplish through this act. So if you're going to Matthew chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 13, and I'm going to go ahead and just read through the end of the chapter, and then we'll come back and talk. Now when they had departed, that's the wise men, when they had left, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. 
and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. I have four pages of notes today. That's double what I had last week. I have two points. So they're very specific, very detailed points, I hope. The first thing that I want to point out, I'm just going to go ahead and lay it out, is that Satan is at war with the unborn. Satan is at war with the unborn. I teased to some people that I was going to tell you this week, I was going to start talking politics, and I remember this was in guys' group last week, and Nick gave me this, like, really, mm, I don't want to talk about politics face. He's like, really? We're going to talk about politics, but we're going to talk some politics. So, here we go. This is an election year, right? Right. We're all in agreement. There are votes to be had. And I don't know if you are a, a fiscal conservative or if you are a or if you are a socialist, or if you are, if you are pro, pro-gun, or if you are pro-whatever, or anti-whatever. By the end of today, I'm going to tell you why I am essentially a one-issue voter at this point. It all kind of boils down to one thing for me. And, and yeah, hey, we're tax-exempt, and you're not supposed to, like, push one party over and I'm not. I'm pushing one issue over everything else, and that is the rights of the unborn. And I'm going to get to that through kind of a long trail of thought. There's this idea that's taught in our schools. There's this idea that is assumed in our society at this point called survival of the fittest, right? This idea that the strong will survive and the weak will disappear. That will, that will slowly become a stronger society or a more advanced society because the stronger will rise up and kill off the weak. Uh, that's, that is the main idea inside of Darwinism, right? The idea that you're going to have these random mutations and then through natural selection, these, these random mutations that, that lead to these stronger, more, more powerful, or, or fiercer creatures are going to kill off all of the weaker creatures, and we're going to continue to move toward this utopian society, this perfected society, that that all of creation is slowly getting better. In fact, we're slowly weeding out all the weakness until we we perfect ourselves as a culture, as 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 a group of beings, that we're always working toward something better. The idea of survival of the fittest is quite possibly one of the most dangerous ideas that we can fully grasp, that we can fully love, that we can can try to promote. This idea, because what it does is it says, it says, the stronger will survive and that's going to be me. It, It puts the focus on ourselves and saying, I am going to outlast everyone else. I'm going to fight and claw to elevate myself over whatever else might be weaker. I'm going to try to find the weaknesses in others and and push them down by those so as to elevate myself so that I can survive, so that I can be seen as more powerful, more sovereign. 
The idea of survival of the fittest is not something that I think we see in Scripture. In fact, we see ourselves, make, we, see, we see the church, we see Christ making himself weaker so that he can humbly serve others. We have a God who reigned in heaven, who humbled himself, made himself weaker so that he could suffer and die to save the weak, to save the broken, to save those who could not survive on their own, to, 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 to elevate those who had no hope. Instead of, instead of ridding the world of the weakness, he ran to the weakness and, and made it something more. What we see in Scripture is not a society, is not a world that is getting better, but a world that is slowly devolving more and more into chaos as sin corrupts us more and more. As more humans are made, more sinners take over the world. The more sin becomes rampant across the planet. We are not improving. We are not working towards some utopian society. We're not becoming better. We're, in fact, becoming more wicked and more broken and more in need of salvation. But this idea that, that if only the strongest would rid themselves of the weak, that things would be better, takes us down a dangerous line of thinking. Because you're essentially saying... There was no creator. There was this happy accident. And then there was this muck that slowly began to get stronger and stronger and more powerful and more powerful. When you take away the creator, you take away the importance and the value of personhood. You take away the image that God placed of himself in his creation. The inherent value in humanity the importance of God's creating Adam and Eve and saying, you are like me. So if you're taking away personhood, then, then it's a logical step to say, well, if we're going to survive, then we need to just eliminate the weakest of the people so that the strong can survive even longer. So, so it's, not, it's not a thing to just say, well, we should find the, the weak or the diseased or the handicapped and we should, we should get rid of them because they're just using up all of our resources anyways. Call them, call them useless eaters, right? And you're thinking, who would call someone a useless eater? It happened. During World War II, I was watching, so I watched this earlier in the week because I found it on YouTube and I think it's fantastic. I think it's, I think it's really helpful. to. You'll see how I drew a lot of this outline out, actually, when you watch it. Ben Stein did this documentary um, called Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. And he basically fought, pursued, he started with this, he started with the fight over um, intelligent design versus Darwinism. And he traced it all the way to Germany in this place called Hadamar. And in Hadamar, the Germans were bringing the feeble-minded, those who weren't as smart, those who weren't strong enough to take care of themselves, and they were killing them all in mass. They killed thousands of their own people so that they wouldn't waste the resources of the nation. 
Which is why it's not that big a stretch to think that if you're going to do that with your own people, that you wouldn't then say, hey, maybe it's because our people are the strongest and we should kill all of these other feeble races, leading to the Holocaust. Millions of Jews killed because of an idea that stemmed from the removal of personhood because there was no creator, there was no inherent value in humanity. And you think, okay, that's great, but, but we won the war. Yeah, America. Right? That's not a thing anymore. All the study and all the research and the science that was going on during World War II led to this new area of realm of science called eugenics. Who has heard of the word eugenics? Okay, some of us have heard of the word eugenics. Eugenics is that exact idea. It is forced sterilization of the feeble-minded so that we can slowly get rid of the bad lines of DNA in our society and work towards this perfected, utopian humanity. There was this eugenicist named Margaret Singer who started Planned Parenthood. Which, which we're told today, Planned Parenthood's primary goal is to give women the health care that they need, to, to protect women's health. But it not only pushes an idea of pro-choice, but pro-abortion, pro-eliminating difficulty by devaluing human life. And, here, and here's why I'm talking about all this, because... The attack on those who threaten our own sovereignty, right? That's what we're talking about here, is not a new idea. Throughout history, and we're going to look at several different examples throughout history. Every time someone's sovereignty has been threatened, an attack on the unborn, a, a dehumanization and a merciless killing has happened to protect one's own authority, one's own sovereignty. I didn't even realize this when I was like putting this together that like just a couple days ago was the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, right? So so this is this is a very important conversation for us to have that we continue to live in a society and I saw the statistics that are comfortable with the killing of something like 43 million or something. It was, like, it was like eight or nine times more killings than took place during the Holocaust by this point, 43 years after this, this vote. And I think that's just in our country, yeah? Not counting what's going on around the world. And this is exactly what happened with Herod in Matthew chapter 2. Out of a sense of self-preservation, Herod murdered innocent children. And this is a struggle that has been going on for a long time. John referenced it. You can turn to Revelation 12 if you want. If not, I'm just going to read it for you real quick. Assuming my fingers will work. 
Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. I'll stop there. This is, this is painting a picture of Satan's anticipation of the birth of Christ so that he could destroy him so that he could not save and rule and reign and ultimately defeat him. And Satan's war on the unborn has been raging. And it says this is going to continue to happen until he was called up. We see this. This is revelation. This is the end. This has happened since Genesis 3.15. We've talked about this verse before, right? Where, where God says to Satan, you will bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. This promise that, that from Adam and Eve, a child would be born who would ultimately defeat Satan. This, this war has raged on, this battle has raged on between these two figures for a long time. They have been at odds with each other since, after, since at creation. This is not a new fight. This is why it's not surprising that the war on the unborn continues on. It does not stop. Because the desire to preserve one's own comfort, flexibility, financial status, uh, authority, whatever it may be, continues to terrify those who are in power now and do not want to lose it. It has continued to terrify Satan throughout the ages because he knew what God was going to accomplish through the birth of a baby. And that has, that has taken a hold in our society because we are an inherently selfish society. We continue to fight for ourselves, fight for our continued preservation of our status. Like I said, our, maybe, it's, maybe it's something financially, maybe it's just something socially, whatever it may be. We continue to fight to keep ourselves in the place that we are in. But our God is not a God who overlooks this wickedness. Our God is a God who does something about this. Our God is a God who, who saves people. Our God is a God who, who calls a man, Joseph, to marry a woman who is already pregnant. Says, give up your status. Give up, give up the recognition of your family. Give up the safety that you feel by remaining holy because people are all of a sudden, if you marry her, they're going to speculate. Why is she pregnant and why are you still getting married? Right? This was, the, this was the choice he had already faced. But yet God said, don't worry. I need you to do this for me. You can trust me. And he said, I trust you. A couple of years later, right then, an angel appears and says, you got to pick up and go. It's time for you to protect the life of this baby. You were called to, to 
take care of and raise this child for God. And now I need you to pick up everything, no questions asked, and leave. Go walk away from your family, walk away from everybody that you know, walk away from your own culture and go live in Egypt until I say, come back. Right? We'd overlook this. We hear just like, oh, hey, how nice of God to say, hey, maybe you should go move because this is about to get bad. But this has got to be a big deal for Joseph and Mary, right? Like he's saying, go. Like, think, think back to how Abraham would have felt when God said, hey, I'm going to use you. Come on. Where are we going? I'll tell you when you get there. How resistant to that idea would you be if somebody said, you got to go to this place right now? That God says, I know where I want you to be. And you're like, that is not where I want to be. That might be a choice, a, a, a question that God would put in front of you and say, you got to go now. you got to do this thing because, because I need to accomplish something by your being obedient to me here. So Joseph picks up everything. Leaves, leaves his family, leaves his friends, leaves everything that he's comfortable with behind. And, and because God is concerned with saving the life of this baby, he leaves before Herod is able to accomplish his murderous vengeance, if you want to call it that. Because how dare somebody be born who's more important than Herod? So to tie all this together, Joseph, Joseph risked everything. He risked his reputation, his, his, his promise of having a home, his promise of having any money, a job, any of it. He risked everything to save the life of what looked to everyone else like an illegitimate child that was born out of wedlock, who today might have been aborted. He adopted that child Right? God said, this is my son. I need you to raise him. He adopted that child and raised him as his own and gave up everything to fight against the tyrannical leader who had murder in his eyes and wanted that child destroyed. So Joseph used every bit of resource that he had to fight for the right of this child. Do we do that? Or do we turn a blind eye? Do we assume God's going to take care of this anyways? What do I have to do about it? It's going to happen. It's, it's 43 years it's been going on. What, what say do I have in it? So point number one, right? Satan has, since creation, been at war with the unborn because he knows that, that through the birth of children, God accomplishes his mission. God accomplishes what it is that he is moving history toward. We studied it three weeks ago. We read, we read the whole genealogy of Jesus from Abraham. And if at any point that line had been broken, things would have been different. 
But God was very intentional in saying, I'm going to use this family and these people in this way to accomplish the redemption of the world. So why did this happen? Why did this happen? So right here in chapter 2, I'm going to talk about this at a broader level. I'm not going to get super, super nitpicky about tying every single strand together. But I want us to get this big picture idea before we move into the rest of Matthew. Because, because if we can have this big realization together here in chapter 2, then as we go through the rest of the book and we tie all these pieces together, I think we're going to have such a huge picture of who Christ is and such a huge picture of what God has been doing ever since creation, ever since he set this whole thing in motion. So here's the biggest point that I think we need to get here out of chapter 2. The Old Testament was about Jesus. And you're like, yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, no, no, no. The whole Old Testament was about Jesus. Like, I'm kind of getting to the point now where whatever it is that I read in the Old Testament is is pointing to Christ in some way. Because because there are too many points that, that... Matthew and these other gospel writers and Paul, when he comes back, starts saying, but look back at this verse in the Old Testament, like, that wasn't talking at all about Jesus. And he said, that was talking only about Jesus. The whole point of what that author was saying, that prophet, or that, or that leader in Israel, or, or Moses, or whoever it was, whatever it was they wrote down, they were saying, God is going to accomplish something through his son. And we're pointing toward that at every step of the way. So we're going to look at this at kind of a macro level. We're not going to get super specific. I'm just going to kind of tie a couple of points together for you. What did we see here tonight as we were reading? Jesus sojourned in Egypt for his own protection for a period of time. Just like Israel. At a time when Israel had had no food, no protection, They were just a family of like 70 people. God sent them to Egypt and said, I'm going to incubate you here. I'm going to safely protect you inside the borders of the strongest superpower that the world had seen at that point until you grow. And and we know as they come out of Egypt later on, they're like 2 million strong, right? So from 70 to 2 million people, God grew his people while they were protected in Egypt. Same was true of Jesus. To protect him, he sent him down to Egypt. A horrendous number of babies were murdered to protect the power of a wicked ruler. Does that sound familiar? Does that not sound exactly like what the Pharaoh did when he knew that Israel was growing powerfully and they were getting larger and and stronger and he was afraid of them, right? He was afraid of what the growing of Israel inside of his borders would mean. So he says, kill all the male babies. We don't want them anymore. They're scaring me, right? My my sovereignty is being challenged by them. It's dangerous for me to think that they would continue to grow. And so who's this war with? It's not with the the grown men of Israel. He starts with the unborn. He starts with those who are helpless to help themselves. 
right? He starts with those who cannot protect themselves, and he says, kill them. Just like Herod. Jesus was saved from that mass murder of children for the purpose of saving his people. Just like Moses, when his mother put him in a basket and floated him down a river, said, God's going to protect him and he's going to lead us out of here. Just like Christ. Then he mentions in verse 18, he mentions the city of Ramah, right? And he's talking about the sounds that were heard in Ramah. The city of Ramah was the first city that Israel would have come to as they were being carried out of Jerusalem and into captivity. So the the sounds that you would have heard in the city of Ramah as they were being carried away would be the wails of mothers who were being taken away from their children or their children had been killed or their husbands had been killed and and they're, they're absolutely devastated by what is happening. That's probably a very similar sound to what you would have heard in Bethlehem on the night that Herod ordered the killing of all of these babies. All of these people. And it sounds really terrible when we read that that quote in 18. But if you read the the whole prophecy, it comes from Jeremiah chapter 31. I'll read you the whole thing. Because... Because that quote is not empty. It it doesn't end with only pain and suffering and brokenness. Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. It's not a promise that's left without hope. Just because this this pain and this tragedy took place in Bethlehem did not mean that there was not hope to come out of this. Because Christ was saved to to bring us the ultimate hope, the perfect hope, the only hope that is everlasting, that is perfect, that is eternal, that that we can actually find true rest in. Jesus was brought out of Israel, was brought out of Egypt, just as Israel was. Jesus' family settled in Nazareth, which which, which Matthew says, and we're going to see this again and again and again as we study. This was to fulfill what the prophecy said, that he would be called a Nazarene. I just want us, I want us to get the big picture that, that we just came out of a really brief overview of the whole Old Testament. And the big question at the end of that study is, what's this all saying? The whole point is, Jesus is it. It's all about Jesus. It was, all, it was always about Jesus. It was never about anything else. All of, the, all of the stories, all of the lives of the people were only meant to point us toward Him. We're only meant to focus us on Him. We're only meant to lead us to Jesus. This whole book is about Him. 
And every step of the way, as we looked through the whole Old Testament, as we, as we studied all of history, as we saw how God brought his people to this point where Christ is on the earth, every step of the way he continues to prove his sovereignty in the way that he has orchestrated every single detail up to this point. Everything that happens has been a part of his plan. God is perfectly sovereign over his creation. And that's the irony of the whole idea of pro-choice, right? That's the irony, and I saw it put this way, and I hadn't heard it said this way. A woman's right to reproductive freedom. I can definitively tell you that that does not exist. There are too many instances throughout Scripture where it says, and God opened her womb, or and God closed her womb, or and God decided that it was going to be this way and it was so. There is no point where we have any say in how any of this works out anyways. So to fight for one's own freedom is to say, I want something that I cannot attain. Because our God is sovereign. Our God is in control. And there is nothing that you or I can do about that. All of this is just a cry for us to be in charge. For us to be in control. For us to say, I've got this. I don't need God. I can do this without him. We don't need a creator. We can come up with a way that we got here. We can come up with a system. We can come up with, with a way by, de, by dehumanizing everyone, by taking away personhood, by saying it's all about who's the strongest, who's the fittest, who's going to be able to survive the longest, who's got the most resources, who's got the most intelligence, who's got the most wealth. That's the only way that we're going to continue as a society. And just by, by pushing all of that away, you're just trying to eliminate the fact that there is a creator. You're just trying to eliminate God in, so that you don't have to realize that you're not in control. And it's just time to let go. So what is the church supposed to do? This is, my, this, this is the big question, and then, then I'm done. We cannot ignore the murder of the unborn. Because our God does not ignore the murder of the unborn. This does not mean that we're supposed to excommunicate someone who has had an abortion, or someone who is pro-choice, or somebody who is even would go so far as to say, I am pro-abortion. I am pro-eliminating eliminating human life because we've got too many people anyways. This doesn't mean that we're supposed to, to hate those people. We're not supposed to, to separate ourselves so far from them that we say, there is no hope. This might even be something that one of us in this room has gone through or faced or, or has a very close relative or friend who has faced this exact thing or gone through this. But it means we should do two things. One, where we're legally able, able to as citizens, we have a vote. Like some places we don't get a vote. This year, we get a vote. And I, like I said, I am basically a single issue voter at this point. If I can vote somebody in, 
who is against this, I'm going to. I don't care if they want to tax me more. If they're going to tax me more so that they can stop abortions, I'm going to go for it. I honestly don't care anymore. That may not coincide with what you tend to find, but I don't care. And the second thing, and this is the most important thing, is that we should pray and beg God to do something. Because we're not going to accomplish anything unless it's His will. We should pray and beg Christ to come back and put an end to this. Right? Because like we said, this battle has been raging on. This war between Christ and Satan has waged on forever. But when Christ comes back, it's over. When Christ comes back, it's done. He's already won. It's just waiting for Him. So we can fight as hard as we can while we're here. But we've got to realize what our, what our actual power is. And our only power is to say, God, do something. Please, do something about this. We are waiting for you. We just, we just want your presence here. We just want you here with us. We want you to put an end to all this pain, all of this suffering, all of this death. We want you to do something because only you can. So I hope that we would again be reminded that it's only at the will of God that anything's going to happen. So we should, we should, we should just beg Him to act. We should beg Him to do something. Let's pray.